So we're moving through the book of uh, Genesis. We come to Genesis 6. Genesis 6. And um, so God created the world so that man could dwell with him. But given the choice, man chose to go his own way, to live his own way of life. And he chose to disobey God. This caused a seismic condition that we call the fall. And it began the destruction of God's perfect creation. God created a perfect world that he could dwell with man. And now this world is is now crumbling. And uh, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. We looked last weekend at the the first murder, which was a brother killing his brother. (laughs) Whether we are aware or or not, the effects of the fall have affected us. Because of the early rebellion of man... Sin is alive and well in our society, and our world as we know it is not getting better. This weekend we're going to look at the downward spiral of this first creation of God. That it was a perfect world, and very soon after its creation it began to crumble. And uh, we're going to learn, because here's the thing, as we look at this passage in Genesis 6, it's interesting because it kind of describes the world we live in today. In many ways, and we'll see what, how, the par- how that's parallel. But we're going to see this weekend uh, how, that, how that world began to crumble and how we're living in a world that's kind of crumbling. And how are we as followers of Christ supposed to live? All right, How do we live in that kind of a world? So I want to go to Genesis chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It's on page 6 of your chair Bible. I'd love you to pull that out and follow along with me. And we'll see what uh, takes place Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 6, and it's on page 6 of the Chair Bible. And this is what the passage from God's Word says to us this weekend. Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters of men were born to them. The sons of God saw the beautiful women and took them, took any they wanted as their wives. And then the Lord said, My spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time. For they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days, and for some time after, the giant Nephilites lived on the earth for whatever, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with the women. They gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. Let me read that statement again. So it sinks in and we see this. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. The wheels have completely come off. And then it says, so the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. And then the last words, it broke his heart. You know, there are people that look at the Old Testament and say, well, the God of the Old Testament is this angry, vindictive, mad God, right? You've heard people say that, right? He says, I don't like that God of the Old Testament. Do you see the last words of this passage we read? 
He sees his world crumbling, the, the world, the perfect world that he meant to, to be with man. He sees it crumbling. And what is his response when he sees it is totally corrupt and totally immoral and totally anti-God? His response is this. It broke his heart. It broke his heart. Sin always breaks God's heart. Will, is he going to judge sin? Will he judge sin? Does he judge sin? Absolutely. Does it break his heart? Yes, absolutely. So I think that's important. There's three key questions, though, from this passage. By the way, in case you haven't figured this out yet, this is one of the most difficult, strangest passages that you may come across in all of the Old Testament, possibly the Bible. There's a lot of strange things going on here. And commentators are, to some extent, guessing on what is going on here. Now, I'm going to give you what I think the solution is, what I think the best solution is. But essentially... Uh, Do I know for sure? Would I bet my life on it? No, (laughs) I wouldn't. But I think think there's bigger issues than maybe the questions we have, but let's look at the questions that we may have. The question, the first question is, who are these sons of God, right? Who are these sons of God? Because these sons of God marry the daughters of men. And you say, well, what does that mean? (laughs) Who are they? Well, here are the common responses that we usually have. They are the descendants of Seth, They are fallen angels, or they are tyrannical uh, warlords, king lords, successors to Lamech. Now, some say, well, they're the descendants of Seth. So the sons of God are the, and it's talking about that they're they're the good line of Seth, and then there's the, the bad line of Cain, right? And so what's happening here is the descendants of Seth are marrying the descendants of Cain. And so it's, you know, they're unequally yoked together, something like that. And that's a possible solution. I don't think it's the right one. The other one is that there are angels and they're crossing a moral line. That angels are having sexual relationships with human women. Okay? And then when you get to the the other, you know, these war, you know, these, uh, these, uh, powerful rulers or whatever, you say, well, that's the product of these marriages. I don't think that's the case. Jesus, remember, he said that angels do not marry in Mark chapter 12, verse 25. So I don't think that's the uh, solution. I think the best solution to this problem is they're tyrannical king lords. And they were taking women and misusing them for their own pleasure. Now, it may be that these king rulers were, and, and they're evil because it's very clear God says they were evil, you know. So it's, it's, it's possible, it's, it's very likely that these tyrannical king lords practice the, the right of first night. You say, well, what is the right of first night? It was a common practice within the, the groups, the people groups around the, the uh, nation of Israel uh, it was a common thing for them, a common practice. There was a common practice in the ancient Near East where the king lord would seize a new bride and sleep with her on her wedding night. So the idea there is that these king lords would seize new brides on their wedding night and sleep with them and take them as their wives. Now, this would make sense. It fits the passage. It fits the culture of the, of the, the nation around, uh, nations around, the people groups around them. Uh, but notice the progression here. The progression is very interesting. It says they saw and they took. 
They saw and they took. And when you go back to the garden, what did Adam and Eve do? They saw and they took, right? They saw and they took. So that was always the, project, the progression. So I think that's really what's happening. I don't think these are angels. I don't think this is a godly line marrying an, you know, marrying an ungodly line. I think it's just, a, it's just wicked kings that are doing terrible things and evil things. And uh, I think it's part of the, the culture. And I think, uh, I'll show you in a minute, that I think there's a, there's a progression to this culture. The, now, the question is, who are the Nephilites? Um, some think, think they were spirit beings, but I think that they're just warriors. Uh, they possibly could be demon-possessed. I don't know. Uh, the point of the text is this. They're corrupt and they're brutal. They are, not fe- they're, they are, they are to be feared, not respected. Now, here's the point. The whole point of this passage is it's kind of cryptic and it's kind of hard for us to understand. But it's very those, there's the, the one point that we can get, the one point we must get is this, that rebellion has become full blown and that God is going to judge this rebellion. In a sense, he makes a statement there. It's almost like Romans 3 where it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I mean, this is one of those moments where uh, mankind has come to a very dark place. And you see the progression. Remember I said that there's a kind of a progression. In Genesis chapter 3, you see the fall of humankind. Adam and Eve fall, right? And we talked a little bit about the effects of that. Uh, the fall of man, the, the fall continues to have its terrible consequences in our lives. We, you know, there's hate, there's murder, there's, there's natural disasters. You come to Genesis 6, you see the fall of, or Genesis 5, you see the fall of the family, right? You see uh, Cain m- murdering his brother Abel. And even today we see murder, hatred, division, jealousy, um, and strife within many families. We see the breakdown of the family more than any other time. So you have the fall of, 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 of mankind. You see the fall of the family. And then I think what we're looking at in Genesis 6 is the fall of society. Society has become brutal. It's become evil. It's become destructive. We're witnessing the continued de- de- decay of the wor- of the the first creation. And when we see the breakdown of society, we see people with a power, with power abusing that power to get what they want, with little or no concern about whom they harm. We're seeing the breakdown of, in God's perfect world, uh, waves of rebellion moving out further and further, and the world's becoming more and more and more corrupt. Now, later in this chapter, next weekend, we're going to see that God will judge this first creation, this first uh, iteration of his perfect world and he's going to raise up a man named Noah and he's going to say I'm going to start over because the corrupt the corruption has gotten so bad there's I, I've got to I've got to I've got to I've got to start over basically I've got to reset he says this my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time for they are only mortal flesh in the future their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. So God almost puts a governor on the length of human life. He basically says, I'm going to limit the life of a human being because the longer they live, the more damage they do. And, and so we're going to limit the damage they can do. Uh, essentially, that seems to be what he's saying. God is limiting the ban- damage that humans can do in a lifetime. He puts an expiration date on the length of human life. But then you come to that last part where it says, So the Lord was sorry that He had made them and put them on the earth. It broke His heart. 
I, I think it's so important for us to see the heart of God. That yes, God is judgment, you know, is a judge, and God will deal with sin. But in the end, this all broke God's heart. This all sin always breaks God's heart. It didn't take long for the world to fall apart. Sin has accomplished his, its purpose. So where? So so hopefully, I mean, I, you walk out of here and you say, "Well, I have an idea of where what they're talking about here." And you know, essentially, the main point of the passage is what the writer wants us to see is this: the world is falling apart. It's not a good place. It's corrupted from the first couple to the first family to the government to any kind of uh, society that's going on is, is terrible. It's awful. And here's where we're going to spend our time the rest of this weekend. Genesis 6 describes a world that's in rebellion to God. It's slowly becoming darker and morally it's morally crumbling. I want to propose to you that as we look at our modern world today, we're dealing with similar issues. Think about that. We have rebellion against God. We have the devaluing of human life. We have corruption in all areas of government. We have the breakdown of the family. We have sliding morality within society. And here's the question we really want to address in all. In other words, my, my proposition to you this weekend is this. We're living in a world that's similar to the world that, was, that God destroyed. The question is, how do we as his followers live in a corrupted world, in a world that's falling apart, in a world that doesn't honor God, in a world where the family is broken down, in a world where morality is gone, in a world where, where when you, you, you look at America and you say America has kind of a good government, and you look at other countries that have dictatorships and just brutal... I mean, you, don't, you, you just can open any paper any day of the week and read any about... And you'll, if you go to national news, even in America, you'll just see it. It's all over. It's just, it's just completely all over. The question is, how do we respond to a world that's gone and going bad? How do we do that? How do we live in a world like that? And essentially... Christians have had a number of responses. They said, okay, we see the world is deteriorating. It's falling away. It's not more godly. It's less godly. It's not moving in a good direction. It's moving in a bad direction. All right, how do we respond to that? Well, (laughs) Christians respond in a lot of different ways. I remember singing a hymn a number of years ago. I haven't sung it in a number of years, but it it goes like this. This world is not my home. This world is not my home. And the perspective in this hymn sees the world as a wasteland of godlessness. And Christians should have nothing to do with this world. This world is not my home. I just want to get out of here. And some people have an eschatology. And for those of you that don't know that, it's a theological term that means it's the study of the end times. How does it all end? And basically their view of eschatology is this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And the sooner I can get off of this piece of garbage, the better. Some people have that view. And that song, This World is Not My uh, Home, kind of has that feel to it. I also remember singing a hymn that says, This is my father's world. (laughs) Which is exactly the opposite. (laughs) Right? This view sees the Christian as responsible for the cultural transformation of our world uh, for his kingdom. So what is it? There's basically three responses that Christians have of how do I live in this world 
that isn't really friendly to God. Okay, how, and it doesn't matter whether you're in America, on, in this world, wherever you are, how do I live as a Christian? And there's really three basic approaches that Christians have taken through the years. The first one is this. We can escape from, or we should escape from it and condemn it. In other words, let's get out of here and let's condemn it at every moment we have. There's nothing good here. Let's just get out of here. Let's just make, make our own holy community, right? And here's the problem. Most of those holy communities are filled with sin. That's the problem because we're all sinners, you know. So no matter how good it is, it's still corrupt. But that's one, of, one, one, one uh, view, escape, right? The second one is we can embrace it and join it. We need to embrace it. The problem is they become so much like the world that there is no Christ to be seen. Jesus was drawing a distinction, uh, the passage I read earlier, where he said, you will love one another and they will know you're my disciples by how you love one another. He's saying you need to be distinct in how you love, right? So he's saying don't become like the world, be different than the world. The third one is, and I think this is the, the, the biblical view, is we can engage it and transform it. We can engage it and transform it. The question is, though, how do we do it? And so this is the idea that I want you to take away with you this weekend. Christ's followers must become a dynamic counterculture for the common good that will transform society for His kingdom. And that's just a lot of words to say. We have a responsibility as followers of Christ to make our world better. To help people come to know Christ. To help marriages be healed. To help people who are destroying their lives. To help people who are poor and sick. To help cultures that are struggling. We're called to make a difference. To transform our world. And specifically to transform our community, our city. We're called to do that. Now how do we live in such a way that our community will be transformed for His kingdom. Jesus said this. He said to His disciples that they were a city on a hill that showed God's glory to the world. And Jesus said this. This is, a, this is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, page 736. This is what Jesus says. Now notice Jesus doesn't say escape. And He doesn't say be just like the world. What does He say? He says you... This is page 736, Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No, light, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, here's how he's applying that. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So here, Jesus is saying, as we live a, a, a life that is like a light, engaging our culture, hopefully we'll do it in such a way that they will see our lives and they will say, God. God. Christians are called to be an alternative city within every earthly city in an alternative human culture within every human culture where to go counter culture where to be within our culture but where to be a counter culture where to be within our city but where to be a different city a different community our values are different uh, the way we talk is different the way we treat people is different 
The way we believe is different. We're not called to escape the world. We're called to engage and transform our city. We're called to demonstrate justice and peace and love and not power and strife and selfishness. We're instructed to live the nation of Israel as they were in captivity. You know, uh, just a little historical background. I want to jump into a passage in Jeremiah in a minute. In Jeremiah chapter 29, the nation of Israel are prisoners. They're in a strange land. And uh, they're in a, in, and it's not a good place either. If you read through the book of Daniel and you see some of the stuff going on, it was a dark, spiritually dark place. Okay, So they're living in a dark culture. And, and through the prophet Jeremiah, he instructs them, how are they as a nation to live within this culture? And essentially what he's saying is you're to live counterculture. You're to live within the culture, but you're to have your own culture within that culture. But you're to make a difference in the overall culture. Okay? So Jeremiah 29.7 on page 596. I'll read it and you can just mark it and then you can go there later on. He says this to the people of Israel. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. In other words, he's saying, make the city a better place. Because if the city is a better place, it will be a better place for you. And that's what he's saying, okay? So he's saying, don't don't, don't go into your own little cocoon. Engage the city. Transform the city. Make it a better place. Have an influence on it. Change it. The exiles were called to love and engage the city. They were called to help it grow economically, socially, and spiritually. See, we citizens of heaven, And that's what we are if we've called upon Christ. We're citizens of heaven. We're called to be the best citizens in our city. The most polite, the most engaging, the most forgiving, (laughs) the most sacrificial. That's what we're called to do. The citizens of God's city are called to be the best possible citizens of their city. So the question is, and this is what we want to close with. How are we doing? How are we doing? How are you doing? How, how are you joining Hope Church to bring His kingdom to our city? How are you doing that? First off, How will you individually influence your personal community for His kingdom? How are you in your own personal life influencing your sphere of influence for His kingdom? How are you bringing His kingdom into your life so powerfully that other people see Christ, that you're a city on a hill, you're a light and a lamp, and they see Christ in you in such a powerful way that they say, I've got to get to know your God. I've got to know Him. Is it because you're reaching to the poor? Is it because you're forgiving those who are that, that don't deserve it? Is it that you're helping the sick? Is it that, what is it that you're doing in your own life 
that, that is making an impact to the people around you? How are you helping them take one step closer to Jesus? And how are you making your sphere of influence better? Why is, why is it better that people are around you? Or, you know, some of us have a reputation that it's probably good for the cause of Christ that nobody gets around us. Right? Because if they hear what we say and they watch how we behave, it's kind of a, it's kind of a black eye for Christ and His kingdom. And, and there are some times when I see stuff in my life and in other people's lives and I cringe when I see it and I go, oh, crap. <laughs> I do. I say, oh, crap. You know, that's not good. Uh, how, it, you know, and, and, but are you the kind of person that, that you're the real deal? That when people see you, they see Christ. And, and it's not because you're always talking about Jesus or you have a Bible on your desk. It, it's not because you're overtly Christian. It's just you just live to a different... You, you march to a different drummer. You, you, just are a, you just love Christ. And people see Christ in you. So personally, how are you... When we leave this room, and by the way, this is not the church. The building is not the church. You are the church. And when you leave this room, you are the church engaged in the community. And if we're going to transform this community, if we're going to bring Christ's kingdom visibly to this community, it will be as we live our lives in such a way that they glorify our Father in heaven. That's how it will take place. Okay? So, so what are you doing individually? In your own life, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. That people see you and they glorify your Father in heaven. They see the kingdom of God in you. And that doesn't mean you have to go out and be, if you're an introvert, become an extrovert. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. How are you making your world, the world around you, better? For His kingdom and His glory. Secondly, how are you joining with your church? And I'm assuming Hope Church is your church. How are you joining us as we strategize and as we think about how can we as a church have a bit bigger influence, a, a more, more of an impact on this community for God's kingdom and for God's good? Frankly, we've come to a place where we're ready to take what I believe is one of the biggest steps we've ever taken as a church. Uh, this Roshek thing is not just about gaining space. It will do that. But it's, it's really much bigger than that. It's about mission. It's about reaching the, the city. It's about loving the city. It's about caring for people that people don't generally care about. It's about saying, God, use us in a powerful way to reach our city in a way that no church in this city has up to this point. And it's not about us. It's just saying somebody has to do something. So why not us? I believe that our move in, to Roshik in 2016 will be the most important step for the transformation of this church in our community that we've ever taken as a church. And there's no question in my mind. There's absolutely no question in my mind. The question is, how many of you are going to join us as we do this? How are you, you know... I, I, I'm not, you know, if you know me long enough, and I think some of you do, I don't hype things up very often. 
I try not to because I don't like it when people do that. I don't like it when people build it up. I really believe in my heart this is huge. This is absolutely huge. That this is a necessary step. That if we, if we don't fulfill this step and, and carry it out, we're going to miss out on what God wants to do. But I believe that if we take this step, and we're really in a good place of taking that step, uh, that God is going to do some amazing things. I am personally invested in Roshek. Uh, and if you care about the future of hope, you will invest your life in that. So let me give you a commercial for Roshek as we close. Now don't tune out because that will wreck everything, right? First thing is, if you don't know what I'm talking about or you need more information, there's two tools out at the Connection Center. Ten, ten uh, things to pray about, ten things to know about uh, our second campus. Here's a sheet with fast facts that tells you information about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, if you haven't made a commitment to, to Roshek yet, a uh, financial co- commitment, there's a, con- a commitment card. You can make a commitment card tonight. You can go out there and say, I'm going to commit to this. I'm going to be part of this. I'm going to give to this. Uh, if you'd like to give, we have these envelopes. Uh, you can give just on, a, on the fly or you can make a commitment and say, I'm going to commit this much over this period of time to do this. Here's the thing. We're not going to do this alone. We're, right now, we're standing on the shoulders of people that had a dream about this field. <laughs> and they put a building up over there. And then that group of people had a dream about this building. And, and now we have a dream about something bigger than that because we want to have more of an influence on this community. And we want to change, transform this community. And we want this community to be transformed for the kingdom of God. We want more and more people to come to Christ. Here's what I believe, and I'll close with this. I am absolutely convinced that God is like a new parent. You ever see the new parents when they bring their kids into our nursery area? It's their first baby, not their second or third, because by their second or third, you, you know, you just kind of throw them to the people and say, catch, right? But that first baby, right? You, you know the binky rule? First baby with the binky, the binky falls onto the ground, and it might be just carpet, and you pick it up, and you boil it in water, or run it, you know, just you almost sterilize it, or get a brand new one, and break it out of the pack, and whatever. Second baby comes around, it falls on the carpet, you run it under hot water, third baby comes around, Take it and stick it in your mouth and stick it back in the kid. Fourth baby falls on the ground and you wipe it on your pants and stick it back in, right? Okay, this is the first baby. That's what we're talking about. When you watch the parents bring the first baby into the nursery, they're saying, is this safe? Are they going to take care of this baby? Do they care? Are they asleep at the wheel? Can I trust them with my baby? And they worry. And they, you know, and is it clean? <laughs> you know, they're thinking all those things. I am absolutely convinced that God is saying this. I have babies. They're in this community right now. And they're ready to be born. I don't have anywhere to put them. I don't have a nursery big enough. Because I don't have people with vision that believe that I have this many babies in this community. But I have babies. And the day that a church determines they're going to build a clean 
safe nursery for these babies, these spiritual babies that I have, I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven in this community. I believe that's what's going on. I believe God wants to do powerful work. And I believe if we step forward as a church and say, God, use us, He will. And I want as many of you to be part of that so that you can rejoice in what God is going to do through Hope Church. So, God says through us in a very strange passage, the world is in a mess. It's an absolute mess and it breaks my heart. Our world's not much different. We can escape or we can embrace it and become just like it. Those are probably the two most common Christian responses. Or... We can engage, and we can transform it. I choose number three. I hope you will too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement we get from it. We do live in a world that is many times dark, and it's corrupted, and there's we just... All we have to do is open a paper up and we just see darkness and we see terrible things. We see murder and we see corruption. We see just all sorts of terrible things. But the one thing we do know, Father, is you haven't taken us out. You've kept us here. In fact, in the prayer that Jesus prayed, Father, he prayed, Father, I pray that you won't take them out of the world but that you will keep them from the evil one. That you will use us, Father, in powerful ways to transform this city for your glory. And thank you, Father, for those who had the vision to reach out to us for bringing us into your kingdom. So may we make this city a better place because we are here And we are reflecting Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.